In the last 10 years, our field has gone from an unknown specialty to a household name. This brings unprecedented opportunities, but we need to rise up to meet them and give our patients the care that they deserve. In order to help others get better, we need to be better. This podcast will help you to become more confident with your patients, more successful in your practice or business, and a leader in pelvic health. And we're going to have some fun along the way. Join us as we rise together. We're Jesse and Nicole Cozine, founders of Pelvic Sanity Physical Therapy and the creators of the Pelvic PT Huddle. And this is Pelvic PT Rising. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Pelvic PT Rising podcast with Jesse and Nicole Cozine. Hey Nicole. Hello. All right, we have a juicy topic for you guys today. Nicole, you are always saying that the analogy or metaphor, whatever it is, of comparing the pelvic floor to the bicep is not the best one. Yes, and I know that this is going to cause a lot of people, if you're driving, be careful. If you are walking, don't veer off onto the wrong path. Just hear me out for a second. So I know that the, y'all know what I'm talking about, which is the quintessential thing that we show patients when we're talking about the length tension relationship of muscles, which is we go, oh, the pelvic floor kind of is like the biceps. And if you already have a shortened, your your elbows bent more, if you try to contract, it's not going to give as much force as if you need to lengthen it and extend your elbow and then do the motion, right? That's how we kind of talk to patients about the need for full range of motion, essentially, of the pelvic floor, and we use our biceps to sort of show that. And just as an aside, do you have any idea like where that comes from? Is that like an early Herman and Wallace thing? Is that a just like easy shorthand that kind of we all come up with independently? Where does that happen? I think honestly, like if I had to take a guess, I actually don't know 100%. So if you do know, then let me know. But I remember this in PT school when we were learning about the length tension relationship of muscles. And because there's an optimal amount of force, it's produced at an optimal length and I mean, there is something called the length tension relationship for skeletal muscles and the pelvic floor is a skeletal muscle. But this podcast is going to be how the pelvic floor is different. And because it's different, then I think that we should abandon the biceps analogy and think of it more like a drum roll, please, trampoline. So I have a lot of reasons why I think this is going to be better for us. And of course, the old habits die hard. So I'm sure that for many of us, we're still going to be using the biceps analogy. I mean, frankly, sometimes so do I, if it's like super easy shorthand to just like get a quick, quick, quick point across. So I get it. But your pelvic floor is literally nothing like your biceps. And so for accuracy's sake, I think it's way closer to a what a trampoline does both in function and in the way that it looks in the pelvis than it is a straight up bicep. So talk to me about this because this is, I know, something you've used to train our people here at Pelvic Sanity. This is a small part of one of the 13 modules of the Essential Pelvic Strengthening Not Your Mama's Kegels course. But where does this trampoline analogy, well, let me ask it the other way. Where does the biceps analogy like break down? The biceps analogy is fine for regular skeletal muscles that have a normal origin and insertion point. 
like hamstrings are another example. Like, I mean, we have a lot of muscles that really truly fall into that. The one thing that was interesting when I was looking at the doing a lot of research, you know, and actually looked at the length tension relationship, the thing that we typically think about is the bell curve, but there is a whole nother side of the passive force of the length tension curve that I think that we're missing in the pelvic floor. So normally we just have that bell-shaped curve where it's length and tension on the x-axis and we have the active force, but there's also a lot of passive force that are related to viscoelastic properties of other things other than the skeletal muscle itself, which I feel like come into way more play when we're talking about things like the pelvic floor. So going back to your original question, why do we do this? It's because for a skeletal muscle that has a pretty straightforward origin and insertion that it moves across one, maybe two joints, It the fiber direction is in one direction, it is an accurate depiction of what actually happens. There is an optimal length of the biceps to carry the most force. But what we're not taking into account when we're translating that into an analogy that for the pelvic floor is that it's just not the same. I feel like there's that TikTok sound where it's like, it's not the same, but it's just, it's it's not the same because it isn't the same. And again, I get that's why we do it for shorthand to see to do it to patients, but are we actually doing them a disservice if they're thinking about it in such a linear, quite frankly, and quite honestly, like it, that's literally what we're doing. It's like a linear process, a straight up origin insertion, one aspect of the pelvic floor working like the biceps. And that's just like not, not how the pelvic floor functions, just period. This is where I always talk about, well, what evidence do you have for that? Well, anatomy and physiology, that's what we have. So when you say origin insertion, I get that. That makes sense to me on the bicep as I'm looking at that. What would be like the origin insertion of the pelvic floor? Is that one of the big breakdowns of this analogy? Yes. So for the non-clinician, I feel like everyone kind of knows that, right? But here's the deal, right? There's really only one one muscle, the pubococcygeus, that typically that actually has an origin and an assertion of, of something that like moves and has excursion, right? Because the pubococcygeus goes from the anterior or the posterior end of the pubic bone and goes back. First of all, there's holes in the middle of it. So that's, I mean, the first time where it breaks down, literally there's holes in the middle of your pubococcygeus because there's the urogenital hiatus, but it does attach down back down to the coccyx via the an anococcygeal ligament. It's not even really a tendon. So it's just like, that's probably the closest thing to the biceps, but there's a lot of other muscles with a ton of different fiber directions that also are present that don't necessarily act like that, that don't have excursion, that don't insert onto a movable part of the bony structure. So there's that. So it's much more like a bowl, a trampoline, a function. And some of the earlier people that actually are looking at doing some of the research on this, the squeeze and lift, which I feel like is the dumbest thing that we can do to test pelvic floor function. We go into that in the pelvic floor strengthening course, but they even go so far as to say like that is not an accurate depiction of true pelvic floor muscle strength and function because of the orientation of the fiber directions. We can't, that's just one of the ways that we can test it in the research, but it is not anatomically carrying the breadth of what the pelvic floor can do. And it just doesn't make sense for how the pelvic floor is also innervated with autonomic innervation and autonomic tone. So there was actually one study that showed that continent people with no pelvic floor symptoms that are doing the pelvic floor contraction, squeeze, and lift correctly 
that they only are able to produce 50% of the strength of what a squeeze and lift can do. So 50% of the strength, quote unquote, is what is able to be generated on that type of reading. Even so, in people who have no, literally no pelvic floor problems. Right, which means that there is a ton of other things going on for the continence mechanism and the pelvic floor function to make sure that those openings are closed off in a meaningful way. Well, and I feel like this is also, I think, one of the beauties of the way that you are teaching this and thinking about it. And I want to go through like why the trampoline is a better analogy. But I think one last thing on the bicep piece that we're talking about is when you start to explain it that way, you really are lending yourself to the really voluntary contraction mode of thinking, right? If you explain something to me as a patient and like, oh, it's like doing curls for your pelvic floor, like that's a very much like, oh, we're equating like bicep curls to Kegels. And that's where you're saying the analogy breaks down. If we're not all about Kegels, then we have to have a better way to explain it than your bicep because that doesn't really make sense. Like that's not a apples to apples comparison. Yeah. Well, and I just feel like too, the thing that we also underestimate, I think for that is that if we start teaching people a relatively incorrect way, then we start to think like that. I mean, the more things that you repeat, I'm sure there's some sort of cognitive something or other that Jesse's like chomping at the bit to explain, but like the more things that you speak out loud, the more you start to believe that they're true. And so I just really hate that whole analogy. And I feel like when you really think about the function of the pelvic floor, the anatomy, just how it looks, it does not look like a bicep. It looks like a trampoline. And I feel like the function, when we get to some of the reasons why this, I feel like is a better depiction of what it needs to be doing functionally, it will help patients to make sense of why we're having them do things in a different manner. Okay. So how do you want to explain the trampoline analogy? You want to do like, what is the different things? How do you actually think about it? Walk me through. Cool. The pelvic, Jesse, the pelvic floor is like a trampoline, dot, dot, dot. Well, okay. So I feel like we should just do this. I want everybody to picture in their minds an actual trampoline, kind of like a big trampoline, like the ones that you would go on with your kids, right? And in fact, some of those nets could even be like how the core canister is if you really want to go there. So I want you to think in your head about the trampoline and what does that actually make up with? Well, you have to put a big trampoline like that on a stable surface, right? You have to have them it anchored somehow so it doesn't tip over. So it has a stable surface for the structure that the mesh part of the trampoline is affixed to, okay? So that's kind of like the bony structure, the bony alignment, your legs, right? Need to have a solid foundation for the structure of the, of the trampoline to actually work and function. Then you think about the structure of it where there's little hooks and there's springs that are attached to a mesh part of the trampoline. So the mesh part is movable. It responds to perturbations. It has a normal resting tone that is both in part based on how tight the springs are and the actual mesh material of the trampoline. You can have trampolines that have a lot of excursion that still rebound. You can have ones that are a lot more taut and tight. And it can be both things. It can be the mesh part of the trampoline and it can be the springs that how tight those springs are. All of that is related to how stable the actual ring structure is of the trampoline and how good that and stable that is onto the ground for it to have the optimal amount 
of excursion and responsiveness to something that goes onto it. Well, so if I'm getting you here, because I had a trampoline growing up and it was none of those things. My parents really did not bother to make sure it was anchored anywhere or that it was away from posts or that it wasn't on concrete. In fact, I have a lot of questions for my parents after this episode. But <laughs> so like the le- the structure, like the bony pelvis structure and like all of the things that provide stability are like that ring around the whole thing that holds it all together. That has to be stable in order for the actual trampoline to be good and functional. What are the springs in this analogy? So the springs are the ligamentous structure and all the other things that are non-muscular, right? So we have things like all of the ligamentous structure that also take into consideration that are suspending the organs up as well. So and there are some of the the tendons and stuff that are more broad tendinous attachments to the bony pelvis. So that's what those are what the springs represent. So this is where, you know, it's not exact, but you can think about the springs as both of those things combined in order to create a optimal tension in the mesh part that is going to be able to both support something to if there if some if a kid goes on there or an adult goes on there and they're standing on it that's what the supportive structure is and then if it starts to bounce and stuff that would be something like similar to like jogging does it have the excursion to be able to do that and stuff like that so then as a patient give me an example of how you would use this analogy like let's say i'm somebody coming in in like chronic pelvic pain Talk to me about like that analogy and how that translates. So then I would talk to them about most people can at least imagine the fact that if you stood on a trampoline that was too taut and then you tried to jump on it, it would not be very fun for the person and it would actually put a lot more stress and strain on the entire structure of the trampoline, right? So you're not going to go very far. You're not going to be able to jump very high. It's not going to function well. You're not going to be able to have very much fun on it if you expect it to have a lot of excursion and it doesn't. It's not very responsive to perturbations. So I think in somebody with chronic pain, we have to say, hey, look, we need to basically reconstruct your trampoline so that it has a lot more of excursion. How do we do that? Well, we can do it by affecting the mesh part, which is me releasing some of the muscles and and basically replacing that mesh part of the trampoline with a more responsive uh, one that is going to have a little bit more give to it, right? Because we need give in that instance. And then we also want to make sure that everything around your bony alignment is, you know, we don't like to use the word alignment, but the bony structure is stable, that the ligaments and stuff will have more support if that is like that. Ah, So that's how you get into, hey, we're not even, the main problem here might not even be like the mesh or the springs. This is how you can talk about like working on, oh, I'm going to work on your hip because the hip is part of that actual ring. That's causing all sorts of problems. So I can see how you can say, hey, we're going to attack this problem too on multiple levels. It's not just because your analogy for someone like that with a bicep would be like, well, we need to like loosen your bicep. Like that's it. Right. Well, and then, you know, the other way that the bicep breaks down is that like it only goes so far as elbow extension. Like we're not talking about elbow hyperextension into that where you're lengthening past the point of the normal resting tone, which is what we need to do with the pelvic floor when you are either prepping for labor and delivery, or you are having a bowel movement, like that needs to actually go beyond where it's resting, where in the biceps analogy, we don't get there because the elbow is so stable and it locks out at, hopefully you're not super crazy, have EDS or something with crazy hyperextension, but there is no more excursion into that area. So that's what I want people to think about too. It's not, 
you're not necessarily changing the length of the musculature that much, which is why I don't really like reverse Kegels because, again, that's like a voluntary relaxing or using pressure in the abdomen to bulge out your pelvic floor. I'm not a huge fan of that, right? We should be able to create for our patients a situation where their resting tone is normal and they have the excursion of their pelvic floor to go into that lengthened position similar to switching out the mesh part of the trampoline for a little bit more pliable material. Yes. Okay. So I can see how this has like wide ranging implications too. It's not just necessarily how you explain this to patients, but how you think of it, how it gives you different treatment options, how it kind of broadens the understanding of what the pelvic floor is. Like you're looking at multiple different things and you can make an effect on a lot of different areas in that system. And this, I think, goes back to your finding the why piece, correct me if I'm wrong, but you can be looking at a lot of those different areas and really seeing like what's driving the dysfunction in the mesh, in the springs, in the structure to see like what's really the problem with this trampoline. Yeah, totally. And all my patients that I talked to about this with, they like get it. It's not necessarily that we're so focused on this voluntary stuff. It also helps us to determine like, that there's so much of this automatic stuff. People can just go onto a trampoline and jump as high as they want or jump as little as they want. And your pelvic floor is still going to be responsive to that perturbation in a way that will not create all of this pelvic floor problems. So you can relate that back to patient symptoms. And just anatomically, it looks a lot more like a trampoline and functions more like a trampoline than it does a bicep all every day, all the time. So I just feel like that's just really, it's a much more accurate, you know, to a point. I know the trampoline analogy does break down. If you really want to get me, you got me. But I do really feel like that is a better way for someone to look at something like that and for a better way for us to teach it so that they start to understand what we're really going for. And what we're really going for is changing the automatic ways that the pelvic floor muscles function because most of the time they're functioning in that automatic way. They're not functioning voluntarily very often. I love that because I feel like that's always the challenge too when you're creating this analogy or helping people picture things or translating one thing to another. How can you keep as close to the true accurate piece as possible while not making it insanely overcomplicated, but not losing too much with the, the lack of complexity. And I think that's, I think, probably, Nicole, your big concern about the bicep analogy is it just loses so much of the complexity of the pelvic floor by making it look like one of the most easily understood muscles. And it's not. Like, it's weird. It's different. It's Yeah. And especially unique. if you think about, like, resting tone, this is where one last thing where I just hate the biceps analogy. If you think about resting tone, your bicep could be have a ton of tone in it. Your bicep could be super floppy. And because the joint structure is so stable at the elbow, it really wouldn't matter. It wouldn't change a lot as much of the bicep function and arm function as it would the same type of issue in resting tone as it would in a trampoline. You can imagine something that's super taut and tight. You can imagine that something is super pliable. So you you jump on it, you almost hit the ground from it. Like that's not a great trampoline either, but that's a harder concept for patients to see, I think, in the biceps model. So that's just one other reason why I don't like it. When we're talking about resting tone so often for most things, I mean, even patients that have prolapse, we care about that a ton. So 
Yeah, I just feel like it's a lot better. And I hope that you guys will be open to thinking about it that way. See how it works for your patients. If you have comments, concerns, questions, please reach out to me. I know this is kind of like, whoa, you don't use the biceps analogy. It's out of like, left field. It's only no, the it. sad thing is it's one of only like the 10 most shocking revelations you've had. Remember when it was a big deal when you like announced that you don't like test voluntary muscle strength, like you don't do the perfect <laughs> on here. And I was like, whoa, was everybody like, freaked what? out. Now everybody's like, oh, yeah, nobody does that. That's silly. It's like, what's well, six months ago? Everybody <laughs> thought that was the craziest thing you're saying. But if you guys want more information on this, this is all part, correct me if I'm wrong, Nicole, of the Essential Pelvic Strengthening course, where you go into this a ton, but then also way into a bunch of other things about, you know, moving beyond Kegels. I know you call it Pelvic PT 2.0 thinking that that's not something that we're always looking at the voluntary and how every exercise can be a pelvic floor exercise with all of the right stuff. All of that is in that course. So we've had almost 300 of you guys go through it. We're getting back all of your feedback, which I know is Nicole's favorite part to actually put it out there and then see how it is changing your guys' practice. But that is where you can find all of that stuff. You can find that at pelvicptrising.com slash Kegel. It's pelvicptrising.com slash keel if you want more information on all of that stuff. Nicole, any last words? Uh, Nope. I just hope that you guys are open to thinking about it a little bit differently. Tell me how it goes if you start to use this analogy. And I'm just really excited for you to potentially get rid of the biceps. Yes. So if you guys have any thoughts, questions, concerns, other ideas, other ways you've described this to patients, please reach out. Let us know. We always want to keep this conversation going. And let's continue to rise. Rise.